Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Stop. Piki mai kake mai. Ko Alison Balance a ho. Welcome to tonight's episode of Our Changing World, in which to prove that we really do span the entire spectrum of science and the environment, we flit from dragonflies to superconductor sandwiches. First up, dragonflies. They're an ancient group of insects that have really stood the test of time. Scottish dragonfly enthusiast Rory Mackenzie Dodds spends quite a lot of time in New Zealand. He's been keeping himself busy while he's here, surveying dragonflies at the Parangarahu Lakes. These are tucked in behind Pencaro Head at the entrance to Wellington Harbour. I join Rory for a dragonfly tour, and we start at a shallow, rush-filled wetland on the edge of the smaller of the two lakes, Kohanga Piripiri. You can see that there is a little, as it were, channel here, and this is an ideal territory for particular types of dragonfly. There's one that's here, but of course it's not here at the moment, called the Lancer dragonfly, and it zooms up and down here, darting in and out of the rushes, setting up a territory, waiting for the females to arrive. Now, dragonflies, tell me a little bit about dragonflies. What kind of insect are they? Yeah, they have their own order, the order Odonata. And what that does in- that mean? Okay, it means toothed ones in Greek. Of course, they don't have teeth, but they do have amazing gnashers uh, for, for consuming uh, their food. It breaks down into two suborders, Alison, the real dragonflies and uh, damselflies, and th- they split up 270 million years ago. So, so they're really not close <laughs> relatives at all? Not really, no. But 270 uh, million years ago is when they split. How long have they been around for? Well, dragonflies uh, per se, 320 million years. So they really are very, very ancient creatures. Oh, they have stickability. They certainly do. <laughs> they certainly do. And they're obviously flying insects. Yeah, they are. Um, I think the thing that stuns a lot of people is how much time they actually spend underwater before they climb out uh, and turn into the adults that you always think of when you say the word dragonfly. Okay, so tell me about their life cycle. Okay, well, a typical a typical dragonfly, such as the lancer that I just mentioned a moment ago, will be two to three years underwater shedding its skin, like snakes do, uh, going through about nine or ten uh, instars, as they're called, uh, before it finally climbs out of the water and emerges. It's an amazing thing to watch when they pull themselves out of their final larval skin and transform themselves into these beautiful flying insects. As dramatic as watching a caterpillar 
pupate and then come out as a butterfly? Uh, oh, absolutely, yes, yes. It is at least as dramatic as that. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, in your, in, in your opinion, more dramatic. Well, I think so, yeah. Now, these larvae, are they living in the mud in a little lake like this? Yes, uh, that's right. They start as an egg and then they'll, they'll gradually get bigger and bigger and they've got an amazing, it's called a labial mask. It's, it's as if you've taken your arm off and stuck it on your lower lip and this thing is very neatly folded up under their, their body and when it goes into the attack, when it, when it decides it's lunchtime and a mosquito larva is passing, for example, this thing will extend itself very, very nearly half the length of the insect and, and grab the mosquito and bring it back to these amazing gnashes that I mentioned. So they really are quite extraordinary, the way that they hunt. So some of them bury themselves uh, in the silt and wait for things to pass, and others actually go hunting using their amazing eyes to search out prey. Now, if I went digging in the mud then and I found a dragonfly larvae, would I know that it was a dragonfly larvae? You don't actually have to dig in the mud. What you have to do is, is what we say in Scotland, we you have to guddle for them uh, in a sense that, that, that uh, we tend to use a sieve or a colander and just shuggle it along the bank and then hoik it out, um, stick what you've gathered, the, the mud and muck and weed and stuff, and dump it into a white tray. And then you'll see all the kind of other insects and, and animals that you, that you typically find. But then you'll spot these very, very obvious uh, dragonfly larvae. They're about, a, I suppose, a two, three centimetres long. It depends on the species. The dragonfly larvae are different from the damselfly larvae. The damselfly larvae are much smaller um, and they've got a set of, as it were, fins. They're not actually fins, they're caudal lamellae. They're, they're, they're gills mounted on the back and they use them for swimming through the, through the water. And the dragonflies have got a trick, which is that they can suck water into their backsides because they breathe through their backsides. They have rectal gills. And they can suck the water into their backsides and then blast it out again and go hurtling through the water like a torpedo to get to the prey or to get away from you if you try and catch them. So they're pretty interesting. I'm still looking for a dragonfly. Have you so seen I. anything yet? Nope. I can't believe it's a perfect day. It is a perfect day and there should be activity. But they're here, believe me. <laughs> Well, I'm watching the swallows. Yes, yeah. I can tell you something about dragonfly flight, um, which might explain why swallows have some trouble catching dragonflies. For example, uh, a typical dragonfly will be able to cover 15 metres from a standing start in less than a second. I mean, they really are supersonic, for you think of the, 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 the size of It's extraordinary acceleration. It is phenomenal acceleration, yeah, really phenomenal, which means that they can get out of trouble pretty well. Part of the reason for, for that is not only the amazing flying uh, abilities, but also the, the, the fact that they can see incredibly well. So as well as having this great acceleration, what else am I looking for when I'm looking for a dragonfly flying? The secret of dragonfly flight lies in their wing muscles. You know they've got four wings and they all operate independently. But the wing muscles are really the secret because, well, for a start, the average wasp, I'm told, has 18 sets of wing muscles and the average dragonfly has 42 sets of wing muscles. Uh, but in the wing muscles, there's a protein molecule called resilin. Now, we have resilin actually in our wrists when you get a shock and adrenaline is pumped into your system. It's resilin which actually pushes the, the adrenaline into your into your bloodstream. There, look, 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 look there. Who's that? Yeah, that's Alonso. Oh, beautiful yeah. thing. Isn't that superb? See how quickly it changes direction. It's doing exactly as I said. It's going in and out of the rush there. 
after a while you get the hang of them. They fly so fast. But if you have a bit of patience and are prepared to just stand by a lovely place like this and wait, uh, you'll start to see the difference between the different species. When we get close, you'll see that Lancer, as it goes zooming by, there's a flash of blue. And that's the kind of telltale sign that it's, that it's a Lancer. There, look, right here, right here. Oh, right, we... just, just went zooming past us. It there, there, there it is. There. It's flying quite Climbing high. Into the sky. Yes, <laughs> yes. No, they fly huge distances, Anderson. No, they really fly enormous distances. So they're not just sprinters. They're actually long-distance machines too. So, yeah, OK, back to Resilin. The best example of Resilin is in the knees of fleas. You know, they, they jump from their knees... And, and in their knees is resilin. Uh, so it's a pretty amazing substance. And, and this is the secret. You know that fleas need warmth to be able to operate effectively. Well, it's the same with dragonflies. They love sunny days because it warms up those wing muscles and enables them to fly really fast. So these swallows that we're looking at, the chances are they may be able to catch a dragonfly if they're really fast in the morning when the wing muscles haven't really warmed up. But in the afternoon, they've got much more trouble. Now, how many species of dragonfly do we have here in New Zealand? Actual dragonflies you're talking about here, not damselflies. Is that right? Yes, OK. OK, we'll dis- discount the damselflies. <laughs> how many of those are there? OK, there are six, of which four are endemic. You only find them here. So the other 12 uh, are here. But of those 12 dragonflies, you're unlikely to see four of them. Uh, one of them has just started to settle at the top end of the North Island and the other three are visitors. So you can really put those aside and think about eight species. And these eight are all native species? Uh, they're not all endemic, no. I think five are endemic. That's a wonderful thing about them because, you know, there's such a limited number of species that, uh, that you can really get your, get your head around them fairly quickly. Now, just for a comparison, how many species of dragonfly do you have in the UK? Okay, we have about 45. There are about five to 6,000 species in the world. So, yeah, you aren't terribly well endowed with, with them, but they are so important, that's the thing. So they're now, not why just are they important? At, they are very, very sensitive indicators of the quality of water, of fresh water. And when you think that, you know, only 1% of the planet's water is fresh water and we've got to use it for everything that we use it for, the fact that these, that these beasts tell us that their water quality is good, where they live, is very significant indeed. I don't think I'd ever appreciated that. I have seen another little one darting around, but further down okay. the other end. We, we need to get closer to be able to spot it. It's very likely there are, there are two other species nipping about here all the time. There's the ranger dragonfly and the yellow-spotted dragonfly. The yellow-spotted is pretty easy because it is yellow-spotted, but they move fast, so you've got to keep your eyes pretty well peeled. And the other one, the ranger, when it lands, it's got yellow bars down its abdomen, down the the, the fuselage, as it were, if it were an aeroplane, down the back end. There's some very small things over there. Yes, that's a common red coat. That's a damselfly. They're just so beautiful. Uh, Yeah, there's a a common red coat male just sitting on a piece of fallen uh, rush down there. It'll be waiting for a female so that it can grab her. Uh, this is true also of dragonflies. The way they mate is, I think, quite fascinating. So tell me about dragonfly mating. 
what happens is the male takes a territory and g goes up and down an area such as the one we're looking at in front of us here. Um, and then when a female arrives, uh, he has a pair of claspers on the bottom end of his abdomen. They're like little extra arms. And he grabs her around the neck with these. And then she curves around and makes a connection with the front end of his thorax. And they form a, a kind of a, it's called a heart position. It, they, it's a very beautiful thing to, to, to see. Uh, and this is true for dragonflies as well as damselflies. You sometimes see them flying around doing that? Yeah. You can see them flying in tandem, as it's called, which is when the, the male has just got around the neck and the two of them are flying together. And then you can see them actually flying when they're... This is what a, a dragonfly nuts expression, where they're in cop, in other words, when they're actually mating. So they fly and mate at the same time. Yeah, look at that. They're flying in tandem. There's two pairs. Do you see them in tandem there? And that one there, the female is curving her oviposit around and she's pushing eggs into that plant... There, so she's ovipositing. There, there they go. She's selecting a new site, and you could turn that over and you could see it'd be like someone had been doing some sewing under that leaf there. Well, this is certainly a damselfly hotspot. It is, yes, <laughs> and that's a sure sign that the quality of this water is good. Now, what strikes me as I'm watching the lancer that's zipping back yes. and forth is the four wings that it has are very clear to see. And it reminds me of a little attack helicopter because, you know, the way it hovers and it's forwards yes. and backwards. Yes, and the, 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 they can hover, they can fly backwards. I, I don't think they actually need to loop the loop, but I'm sure they could. Uh, and you can see how quickly they dart in and out. And each of those four wings can operate independently, which gives them phenomenal control. They're like the world's oldest flight engineers. They really are. I've worked with helicopter engineers from, from Italy and from Germany, and they go gooey about the wing design, as it were, uh, of dragonflies. Front end very stiff but hinged, rear end soft like a flag. It's quite extraordinary. Now, I know there was another place you wanted to show me, so I suspect you've got something else up your sleeve. What's yes, that? Yes, I, what I'd like to do is to show you what we think we've got here at uh, Lake Kahanga Piripiri, which is New Zealand's finest, uh, which doesn't actually behave in the way that you'd expect, or I would expect, a typical dragonfly to behave, i.e. three years underwater. Before we give the whole story away, let's go <laughs> okay. to the secret spot where you're going to reveal what this incredible <laughs> well, creature is. Let's hope so. Okay. Okay. What we've arrived at here, Alison, is shaded. It's quite a, a rare habitat for, for these lakes. Uh, I think these are Manuka or Kanuka trees, I'm not sure, but you can see how we're in the shadow of them now. And we're also standing beside this bank here. And what I'm looking for is what I've seen in other habitats uh, around this area. For example, Butterfly Creek, uh, the Botanic Gardens, uh, Atari Wilton's Bush... Um, is a bank which has got actually running water coming down it because that is the kind of habitat which the bush giant really loves. Um, it likes to be able to drill these holes which go down about 60 centimetres, something like that, maybe more, and at the bottom they've hit the water table so that they, they actually live in the water at the bottom of these burrows. So we're still talking dragonflies and we've got rushes just to our right here but that's not where you're looking that's not where i'm looking on this occasion no because i'm looking for the for this particular bush giant the one that it doesn't live in streams or rivers or lakes it lives in these wonderful burrows is it as big as the name sounds it is yes it is if you go tramping very often it's the one that actually lands on your hat i've met those before just nearby here in wainui yomata <laughs>
There we are. They're extraordinary creatures. They are enormous. Well, the, re- the reason that I'm standing here is because the very first visit that I made to this lake, I was returning back along this path, and I heard this tremendous clattering noise above my head. And I looked up, and there was not one but two bush giants about to mate. And um, I've been uh, in contact for many years now with with one of, uh, if not the top person for dragonflies in New Zealand, Richard Rowe. He's actually not in New Zealand anymore. He has said that the females very rarely move away from about, I don't know, several hundred metres from their burrows. Well, I've actually seen a female mating right here. So what we've got to do is to find the burrows. OK. <laughs> Off you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what I'm doing here is, what, is just kind of keeping an eye on this bank uh, to our left, and you can see it's still very, very dry. Um, so we'll just plod on a bit. I came to this point here, and I found myself looking up here, Alison, and you can see it's much damper up there. Now. And then inspect the forest floor. Yeah. There's one there and there's one there. They're tiny at the moment. There's another one there. Uh, They start off quite small and gradually they make the holes bigger and bigger. But they'll finish up with uh, a hole with a diameter of about three centimetres, something like that. And often they'll pile the mud up uh, round the hole and make a sort of tower. How long are those larvae going to spend in those burrows? No one's exactly sure. Um, they, they've been bred in captivity, and typically it's five or six years. So that kind of age is not unknown uh, in dragonflies, but it's very unusual. Typically it's two to three years. And for a damselfly, it's much shorter. It's about a year underwater, and then about four or five weeks flying. This is our only dragonfly that builds these burrows in the soil? Okay. Here in, in New Zealand, you've got two species. You've got the bush giant and the mountain giant. Essentially, the mountain giant lives in the South Island and the bush giant lives in the North Island. That's not to say that there aren't one or two bush giants in the South Island, but essentially that's the difference. And we reckon, I say we very grandly, but it's people like Millen Marinoff in Auckland and Richard Rowe, uh, they reckon that uh, the, the two species divided about a million years ago. In other words, after the mountain ranges appeared in New Zealand. But the really interesting thing, I think, is that uh, Europetala, the bush giant, goes back 127 million years. So what you're looking at when you see one land on your hat, effectively, it's virtually identical to one which was flying around 127 million years ago. It's long before Zealandia split away from from Australia, this group became unique, and it's the only place where you can see these wonderful bush giants. Here is New Zealand. Thanks, Rory. That was dragonfly enthusiast Rory Mackenzie Dodds, and I've posted some of his dragonfly and damselfly photos on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And while it's getting late in the season for dragonflies, Rory says that if you're out and about in the bush or near lakes or streams over Easter, it's worth keeping an eye out for them. Kate Fakaronga mai kwekito tato al horihori, he hotaka e panakia papatuanuku. Tangaroa Meirangi Nui. This is Our Changing World on RNZ National, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. Now, 
it's time for some sandwiches. And no, these are not the latest lunch craze. They are superconductor sandwiches. University of Auckland physicist Ben Mallet is here to tell us about them. But first, he's going to introduce us to superconductors. They can conduct electricity with, without any resistance at all. So absolutely zero resistance. This is a, a unique property of, of matter. And to date, it only happens at really low temperatures. So minus 200 degrees Celsius, something like that. The common application is to make very powerful magnets. We see them in our day-to-day lives already. So a particular example which people might know about are MRI machines. Scanner you might be putting at a hospital. Yeah, yeah. The coil which creates a magnetic field is made from a superconductor. A more exotic application is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which recently discovered the, the Higgs particle. All around that ring, you need uh, superconductors to create these magnetic fields uh, to, to keep the particles going in a circle. What are superconductors made of? We're discovering new ones all the time, actually, and, and one of the surprising things when I got into this field is that most elements become superconductors if you cool them down to cold enough temperatures and sometimes if you put them under pressure. This means it's actually quite a common state of matter, but it's a very unique, but it's quite common. Um, and we don't notice it in our day-to-day lives, obviously, because they have such low temperatures. The particularly useful superconductors, however, we are just starting to develop finally and, and produce on a mass scale. Um, they're a mixture of uh, metals and, and oxygen, and they were, again, quite a surprise when we discovered that they were actually very useful. Can you give me a specific example? Yeah, yeah sure. sure. So the, the one which is particularly well um, studied, and uh, New Zealand had a big part in this, is a material colloquially called YBCO. It's a mixture of yttrium, barium, copper and oxygen. The ceramic compound YBCO is one of a new generation of high-temperature superconductors. Now, high is a relative term. Low-temperature superconductors need to be cooled to below minus 240 degrees Celsius. This requires expensive liquid helium. But high-temperature superconductors, such as YBCO, they work at relatively balmy temperatures, warmer than minus 196 degrees. You can achieve this with liquid nitrogen, which is much cheaper. The Robinson Research Institute at Victoria University of Wellington is a world leader in high-temperature superconductor research. In 2009, Bob Buckley and Jeff Talon won the inaugural Prime Minister's Science Prize for their work in this area. One of their major discoveries was another key superconductor called BISCO. As well as making powerful magnets for things like MRI machines, high-temperature superconductors could transform our national electricity grid. They're being used in power cables and for making highly efficient electricity transformers. Now Ben did his PhD at the Robinson Research Institute and he's now a Rutherford Discovery Fellow at the University of Auckland where he's got some exciting work on his plate. The particularly new thing I'm doing is looking at the interaction between these superconductors and and magnetic materials. 
So I, I call it superconductor sandwiches because I, I make a, a sandwiched layer of a superconductor in the middle and a magnetic material on either side. You get qualitatively new behavior when you do this. There's some interaction between the superconductor and the magnetic material uh, which we don't understand at all. But the reason why that's particularly exciting and interesting is that it is so unexpected that it really hones in what theoretical description you need for the superconductor. Presumably you have a lab somewhere here at the university where you make these superconductor sandwiches. What sort of scale are you working at? You know, is it something the size of a matchbox or is it something the size yeah. of a book? Yeah. Um, so they're very thin sandwiches. They wouldn't be very sustaining for a few went to eat. Actually, they might be mildly poisonous, actually, if you ate one. I don't recommend it. Crunchy, too. Cr- crunchy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are very thin, so nanometer thin. And I, it's, it's difficult for me to imagine what a nanometer is. But we have these beautiful images from what's called electron microscopy. These beautiful images, you can see the atoms, and you can count the atoms. You can say, ah, there are 50 atoms in my layer, and I think that's quite cool. So they're very, very thin, very small, um, uh, thin layers, uh, thin enough that you can actually count the number of atoms in in the layer. What's, I think, more remarkable is that they work, in such a small scale. So what's novel and interesting (laughs) about what you're doing? Universally, superconductors, their properties get worse in a magnetic field. And this is a problem for um, applications. The really curious thing is in these superconductor sandwiches, the properties get better in a magnetic field. And it's... uh, that's a complete surprise. I thought the data were completely wrong when I first saw them, and I, uh, I got very excited. And we're only beginning to understand why they have this qualitatively new uh, behaviour. So we use superconductors to make things like magnets. Yep, yep. But superconductors don't like magnetic fields. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there's, a, there's a conflict there, definitely. <laughs> so what kind of applications do you see for these super-thin superconductor sandwiches? Ah, for, for the sandwiches themselves, so they allow exquisite control over the properties of, of the superconductor and control those properties we are still discovering, um, but by small magnetic fields or electrical fields, you can completely change the properties of the superconductor. So that could be an application of these particular ones. Uh, For superconductors in in general, it's quite exciting what's happening with with the use of superconductors in quantum computers. Thanks, Ben. That was physicist and University of Auckland research fellow Ben Mallett. We've featured New Zealand's groundbreaking work on high-temperature superconductors on Our Changing World before, and I've posted links to those stories for you on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You'll also find lots of photos of dragonflies there, along with our contact details, and you can also sign up for our weekly email newsletter as well. That website again, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And 
Did you know that you can find all of RNZ's science and environment stories in one place? Just click the Topics tab at the top of any web page and you'll see the Science and Environment section waiting for you. Have fun. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.